superb pin, isn't it? Brilliant. Uh, whoever chose that, thank you, because it kind of summarizes uh, what we're going to look at. So I could actually sit down, we could sing it again, <laughs> and we could have an early lunch and go off to the park. That sounds a really good idea to me. But I don't think Gavin would let me get away with that. So we're coming to this postcard, so-called, uh, just before the book of Hebrews, Philemon. It's, uh, it's a long postcard, I admit. It would, you'd be hard put. You'd have to get one of those big postcards to, to write it in very small writing, wouldn't you? But it's a very short uh, letter in the New Testament. And uh, tomorrow we're going to look at 2 John and 3 John. But now I'd like us to look at this particular uh, very small letter in the New Testament. Now, none of us, if we're normal, I think, like to be uh, confronted or indeed to confront other people. If Devon said to you, um, uh, I'd like to see you before we have lunch, you'd be totally distracted, wouldn't you, for the rest of the, rest of the time. You'd hear nothing that I'm about to say because you think, what have I done? What's he going to say? It's the... No, nobody likes confrontation, do they? It's a kind of, uh, it just doesn't sit comfortably with us. The idea of uh, confronting somebody is quite foreign to us. It literally means coming face to face. It makes us anxious, it makes us insecure. It's something most of us will do anything to avoid. But biblical confrontation, or more especially, I think, carefrontation, is something that we need to embrace as Christians. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So there's this expectation, actually we just sung about it, that viewing the preciousness of the body of Christ and expressing the love of Christ for one another means that we are ready to address those things in one another's lives in a biblical way that will enable them to be mature in Christ. It's not something we go about all the time. It's not something we kind of, we, we're kind of on a, a hunt for. But actually, it's very, very biblical, isn't it? You know what it's like, don't you? Uh, if somebody comes to you and talks about an issue, and it's costing them, it's really costing them, you're much more likely to hear them, aren't you? And then you feel they've just come to nail you to the wall for 10 minutes and they haven't really any real interest, other than offloading on you, in your growth as a Christian. But if somebody is coming to talk to you about something, do you realize that what you said there, how you did that, is actually how that lands with people? It's actually a very loving thing to do that. But it's got to be done in the right spirit and the right manner. The Bible, however, makes clear that our relationship with Christ, which is personal, is not private. It's lived in community. And it's really something we need to embrace as Christians in the West, especially. If we, if we were in an African or Asian context, the idea is very natural in the culture itself that we are a community. We are a family. So um, uh, I remember a few years ago, we had, a, we had a guy from the Benin, and Augustine, from the Benin, as he called it. And uh, because I went to meet him, I was the first piece of person to go and meet him. He's working with IFES picked him up at the airport at Heathrow and he stayed with us over the weekend and he was going to be based with us in the church and do Cornhill. Um, what I hadn't realised was that very meeting with him, being the person to welcome him, gave me a kind of relationship in his thinking with him that uh, I was clueless about. 
but actually it, it kind of meant I was his father uh, for doing that. And uh, there was a relationship and expectation there. So that, that culture, the African culture, often more readily breeds that. And remember, the Bible culture is much nearer that than our Western individualistic culture. So collectively, the Bible has this expectation that we're going to be ready for the glory of God and the good of one another to seek to care front each other where necessary. Because it's the only way I'm going to mature in Christ. It's the only way I'm going to really grow as a Christian. Now, that's a very helpful thing, I think, to remember when we come to this, um, this book, of uh, this letter, rather, of Philemon. Because the danger is, of course, when, when difficulties come in our relationships, as my good friend Bob, Bob uh, Robinson said uh, from Northern Ireland, uh, he, he, uh, he took time out from work, he's in the oil business, but he took two years out from work when we built the King Centre and started the King Centre at Chesington uh, to, to, to head up the staff and get it established. He had this great phrase, it suddenly dawned on him, he'd kind of gone from... Uh, being in a fairly kind of important position within BP to sort of running a team where it's like volunteers, totally different thing, isn't it? And uh, he, he came up with this phrase, he said, he said to me one day, Trevor, Trevor, excuse the accent, Trevor, he said, uh, Christians are great at loving one another from a distance. He's absolutely right, isn't it? We're great at loving one another from a distance. I can love any other Christian you want to name from a distance. You put me in a team with them, what immediately happens is, I want to do it this way, they want to do it that way. Uh, I see it this way, you see it that way. It's the recipe, isn't it? It's what happens. That, um, that's what happens. But what, what does God do? He puts us into a family, and within that family, he calls us to work together for the gospel so that um, we could uh, make Christ known and put on demonstration the difference in making Christ known makes in our lives but the reality is that when difficulties come we do one of two things don't we we can either well let me ask you what's what's those two things here we go quiz question number 11 and 12 together what's the two things that we do you've joined us on a quiz love you'll be pleased nothing has changed from last night we're on questions caroline will bring you up to date with first 10 questions this is question 11 or 12 when there's a difficulty in a relationship that you have with another christian the danger is you do one of two things. Just discuss it with the person next to you, you for two minutes. What are those two things? We all do this. Okay, anybody going to be bold enough to start us off? What, what, what are we likely to do? One of two things. 
Difficulty in a relationship. What we like to do. Yeah, so we, the first thing is we can actually withdraw, isn't it? We can go into like a cocoon. Uh, let them come and apologize to me. Let them put it right. Just kind of surround ourselves with people who are going to affirm our view, our opinion of things. But basically, I'm going to withdraw from you. You've hurt me, I'm going to withdraw from you. That's, that's essentially one way it works, isn't it? Or, what, what's another way? We attack, yeah, we attack. And we condemn them. We either kind of cocoon or we condemn. We start to rubbish them, don't we? We don't go and talk to them, but we talk to plenty of other people about them. Uh, that's, that's sadly the way breakdown in relationships often operate. And we're not immune from that. We fool ourselves to think we're immune from that. And some of us, maybe throughout our Christian life and our Christian experience, we've, we've known that firsthand. We've been part of that. Or we've experienced that uh, in churches and so on. So there's a, there's a breakdown in relationship. And, and people either cocoon themselves, we're not going to deal with it, but we'll just talk about it, or we kind of rubbish the person, we condemn them. But I want us to see from Philemon that neither of those ways is biblical. But the way to deal with it is to actually carefully confront it. And this is a master class in actual confrontation. So we come to the letter itself, Philemon. You need to know a little bit about the story behind the postcard. Philemon is a prominent Christian in the city of Colossae. He owns a slave. Now it doesn't sound quite as bad as it sounds because that's the way the kind of the economy operated. But he owns this man called Onesimus. Now Onesimus had stolen something, whether it was money or whatever, but he'd stolen from Philemon and run away. And in those days, if you're going to run away, where do you tend to, in these days you tend to do it, if you're going to run away, where do you tend to run away to? If you want to, if you want to lose yourself, the big city. So he goes off to the big city. He takes himself off to the biggest city in the Roman Empire, to Rome itself. He does a runner, verses 18 and 19, essentially. And no doubt he, he hoped, Onesimus that is, just to lose himself in this city. But God had other plans. And we're not told how it happened, but the remarkable thing is that Onesimus, whilst he's running like the prodigal, ends up becoming a Christian. It may be that he'd actually gone and sought out Paul. He'd heard the gospel in Philemon's home. And imagine those people uh, back in Philemon's home who'd kind of almost given up on this guy, Onesimus. Oh, he's gone, he's lost, that's it sort of thing. But actually, God hadn't given up on him. And the gospel that had been planted in his heart was still being activated by the Holy Spirit. And however it happens, whenever it happens, Paul and Onesimus get together. And Onesimus remarkably becomes a Christian. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Very straightforward one. What's the problem, Adrian? Yeah, so it's, um, so oh, don't worry, brother, you become a Christian, God's wiped clear all your sins, forget about it. You could do that, couldn't you? Or you could say, actually, insofar as it's in your ability, put it right. So there's the problem. How is Paul going to reconcile 
these two men. The man who's been wronged, Philemon, and the man who's done the wrongdoing, but has now been wonderfully uh, saved. Why is it so important, though? This is the point. Why is it so important that they are reconciled? What's at stake? Why? Why not? I'm going to keep pressing you here. Question 16, why not? The wrong image of what? Question 17? You thought you'd come for a relaxation on Saturday morning. You thought you'd come here to enjoy yourself. I've got, I've got other news. <laughs> right. Yeah. And what's his message? What's the message of the gospel? In one word, reconciliation, isn't it? So at the heart of this is the gospel, you see. The message is a gospel of reconciliation. It's not simply a reconciliation, although it is primarily that, of God to man and man to God, but also the fruit of it is seen in a reconciled community. And if that community isn't reconciled, then it's denying the very message that it's proclaiming. Do you see that? So the world looks on and says, oh, you talk about reconciliation, you talk about peace, you talk about brotherly love and so on. Don't see much of it. You're fighting, you're warring, you're not forgiving, you're cocooning yourself, you're condemning people. I'm not going to listen to your gospel, your message. It's vacuous, it's empty, it doesn't mean anything. That's what's at stake, absolutely right, Lionel. What's at stake is the glory of God, it's the gospel. What integrity would Paul have preaching this gospel of reconciliation between God and man if it didn't bring about a reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus, between these two Christian men. Now, I've no doubt that all three of the characters involved, Paul, Onesimus and Philemon, would have preferred simply to go down the route of um, probably denial, of cocooning it and just forgetting it and let's move on. But it seems it's not an option before them. The challenge for Philemon is that of condemnation, isn't it? If he ever got his hands on this man again, what he would do to him for the wrongdoing he's done to him. You know, under Roman law, Philemon could have had Onesimus put to death because that's how they kept the slave population under control. If there was a runaway slave and you caught them, you, you did one of two things. You either killed them or you branded them. You branded them um, so that it was obvious to everybody that then saw them, this was an unreliable slave who'd once run away. It was a way of keeping the slave's population in order, that you make an example of those that run away. That was an option before Philemon. That's what Onesimus could expect if he went back. So this is a big thing. So on the one side you've got Philemon and the options that are before him. And then for Onesimus, I guess at this point he'd much prefer to go with denial, wouldn't he? I mean, what it was going to cost him to go back to Philemon was incredibly big time. He stood to be the one slave in ancient history who'd ever gone back voluntarily. I mean, that would have really hit the Colossi Carrion or whatever newspaper it was, wasn't it? The runaway slave returns. It was unheard of. But this is what Paul is 
bringing about. So imagine the surprise one morning when there's a knock at the door, at, at Philemon's door, and he opens the door, and there is Onesimus. And he's carrying a scroll in his hand. He's carrying a letter from the Apostle Paul. And he opens this scroll, and he reads in verse 15, Perhaps the reason he was separated for you for a little while, that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. I wonder if Onesimus' initial reaction was, A dear brother? Dear brother, Paul? He's not my brother. I own him. I can do with him whatever I want. So did you get a flavour of this dramatic situation here? Paul is asking Philemon to do something immense. He's not only asking him to forgive him, but actually to restore him, to welcome him into his home, not simply as an employee now, but as a brother, as a brother. Not as a slave to go and get the pizza when it's tea time, but an integral member of the church. You see, this is what the gospel does, isn't it? This is the gospel in action. It's an amazing thing here. Do you see the sacrifice involved for everybody to make this restoration possible? Firstly, in verse 10, there's a sacrifice that Paul has to make. It's very poignant, isn't it, when you read this, new, this, uh, this uh, letter. You get the poignancy for Paul. He talks about being an old man. He talks about being in prison. And we know from his other letters how tough that was and difficult that was. And there's a flavour of the cost for Paul here. He calls Onesimus his son. It's a play upon Onesimus' name. He's saying the runaway has become a great comfort and helper to him. But Paul is now going to have to give him up. That's a costly thing, a really costly thing. Then there's Onesimus himself, being prepared to go back and face the music. Question number 19. What is the Elton John song that captures, in one word, well, you're there again, Lionel, you're with me. We're in the zone, brother. Yeah, we're in the zone. Sorry, isn't it? It's absolutely right. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. You know that if you've ever had children. It's like getting blood out of a stone to get a sorry out of it. I was with a, a friend of mine, a pastor in, in North London this week, and he's talking about his, his 20-year-old daughter. He said, why is it that when, even now, when I kind of try and kind of pull her up on something, it always turns around the other way as if I'm in the wrong? She's, I don't know, she's got this ability to make me feel bad when she should feel bad. It's because sorry seems to be the hardest word. It is, isn't it? It's a just won't come out of our mouth, it seems. Onesimus was going to have to go back and say, sorry. And there is that constant desire in us all, isn't there? To blame somebody else. It's not my fault. It's my background. It's what they did to me. Onesimus puts his life on the line. There's incredible stuff going on here. It says, Paul, he's giving up this man. He loves him. He serves him. Is a comfort to him, but the gospel is bigger, so he's got to go back. It's going to cost Paul to send him back. Onesimus, it's going to cost him. Wow, what, what if Philemon says to me, okay, brother, you're a Christian, that's wonderful. So when we have you put to death, you'll go straight to glory. <laughs> so there's great comfort in the gospel for you, Onesimus. 
I guess that must have gone through Anessus' mind, wasn't it, as he's making his way back to Colossae. What's he going to say to me? How's he going to treat me? And then, of course, there's Philemon himself. Can you think about the hassle he's going to get from the slave-owning classes in Colossae? The pressure he's going to come under to deal with this slave. I mean, this is big time, isn't it? Is he going to stand by his Christian principles or is he going to go down to the culture of the day? It's a big thing. I, I guess he was more than flabbergasted when, when Onesimus turned up on his doorstep because it must have raced through his mind. This is going to present me with massive issues. What are they going to say about me down the club now, down the golf club, in the business guild? What's going to go on? You see, Paul says, welcome him back as you would welcome me. Oh, well, that'd be a different thing if I was welcoming you, Paul. You're an apostle. You brought me the gospel. You're my great mate in the gospel. I love you in the gospel. You're my father in the gospel. I'd welcome you into my home anytime. Well, if that's the case, welcome this man, this man who's wronged you. This is astonishing stuff, isn't it? It's only the gospel that will do this. It's only the gospel that will do this. You probably know the story of Cory Tenboom, who for many years... Uh, hid, uh, as a a Jewish uh, Christian woman, hid from the Nazis during the Second World War, but was eventually discovered, along with her sister, was uh, sent to a concentration camp. Her sister perished in the camp. Corrie Ten Boom survived. A few years later, four or five years later, she finds herself in a meeting. She's speaking at this meeting. At the end of the meeting, a man comes up to her. And as he's coming up, she recognizes him. He's one of the guards, the Nazi guards, who had so ill-treated and abused and been culpable for her sister's death and all the abuse that had happened to her. And he comes and asks for forgiveness. It's not an easy thing, is it? It's really not an easy thing. I commend to you to read that book, Corrie Ten Boom. It's a costly thing. But how can you have any integrity in the gospel if you say the gospel is about reconciliation, but I will not be reconciled to you. You've, you've harmed me so much. I will not be reconciled to you. It goes out the window, doesn't it? There's a cost. It was picked up in that song, amazing. I don't know if you notice it. It talked about the cost of loving God's people. There is a cost to it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.12, death is at work in us in order that life might be at work in you. That's how it operates. It's the way of Christ, isn't it? For you to come to life, for me to come to life as a Christian, it required the death of Christ. That same principle actually runs like a DNA through the Christian life, through Christian relationships. This is costly for everybody involved. It's going to be pain, it's going to be self-sacrifice, but if it doesn't happen, Christ is dishonored. You know, when we come around the Lord's table, it always encourages us, doesn't it, to discern the body. And often we read that and think it's talking about the body of Jesus. Well, it is, but it's not talking about his physical body. It's talking about his people. And it's talking about the fact that we shouldn't be a sham as we come around the table. And if we're not at this place at the moment, 
we can almost guarantee it, can't we? There will come a time when we're in the place either of Philemon or of Onesimus in the church and in our relationship and in our Christian life. There'll be that person that's wronged us, that's defamed us, that's been unthinking and careless. How are we going to deal with it? Cocoon it? Condemn them? Or be reconciled? The choice is there. Discern the body, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, as we come around the table, the table that speaks to us of reconciliation. Or we might be a Philemon, and we've done somebody wrong and harm. And it takes a lot, doesn't it? It takes the very work of God, the Spirit of God in us, to actually go to a person and say, you know, I'm really sorry. And sometimes it's all that needs to be said. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. But it's so hard to get that out. And it's not sorry, but. Sorry, but there was a reason for it. It's just, no, I'm sorry. And Esimus could have said, I'm really sorry, Philemon, but after all, there's a huge injustice here. Slavery is not right. It could have been a sorry but, couldn't it? It's not. It's a sorry. It's just a sorry. One word will suffice. It's going to come all our ways. I don't know you. I don't know. You seem a very happy bunch to me. But there may be problems in relationships within the church. And let us remember that those things ultimately are about the glory of God. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the glory of God. How can we hold out a message of reconciliation if we are not reconciled to one another? Why should we do it? Well, let me end by pointing it out to you from this little letter. Firstly, we need to be reconciled for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. Although in Christ, says Paul, I could be bold and order you to do what to do, Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. What love? The love of God, the love of Christ. Why be reconciled? For Christ's sake. You see, we live in a culture that dismisses other people. But the culture is always like that. A godless community is always like that. Whatever the ethnic group, whatever the century, that's the world. But here's the Christian community And here is where it's to be distinctively, qualitatively different. And it's not something we have to work up. It's actually something gifted us in the love of God. We love God because he first loved us. And we're enabled to love one another because we then see people through that grid. What is the value of that person? That person who's given me a lot of grief, that person who's defamed me, that person that's hurt me. Well... They are loved by God, just as I am loved by God. And God's not finished with them yet. And this very thing might be the means of them growing as a Christian. Second reason is, do it for love's sake. Verse 9, I appeal to you on the basis of love, the authentic mark of being a disciple of Christ. But thirdly, do it for the gospel's sake. It's so poignant this, isn't it? Paul's an old man. He's in prison, he's in change, he's tired, his body is fading, that body that had been broken and whipped and shipwrecked and endured intolerable hardship. If ever a man had a right to call a favour in, Paul did, didn't he? And Paul says about that, doesn't he? He said, I, I, 
you owe me, in effect. He kind of uses that very modern phrase, doesn't he? Do you notice that? He kind of, I could say to you, Philemon, you owe me. But he doesn't actually quite do that, does he? It's going to cost Paul to send Onesimus back. But supremely, Paul is a gospel man. And he's ready to sacrifice his own convenience, his own comfort, for the sake of a gospel reconciliation. And finally, verse 10, do it for the sake of that other person. I appeal to you, verse 10, for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. I know he deserves death. I know, at the very least, he deserves to be branded. But he's become useful. This man had become useful. Do you know what happened to Onesimus? Let me tell you. Years later, he became a bishop. Now, I know we don't go with bishops and that, but that's, he was the bishop of a first-century church, an elder, if you like. How do you think Philemon <coughs> felt when Onesimus became a bishop? I guess he thought, wow, this has been worth it. I guess he felt rather proud of the man, of what God had done in the man, wasn't it? You see, how do you do this? Well, you go back to verse 4 to 7. What's the motivation? I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. You see where Paul begins, in a sense, with this. How does he approach it? He wraps up this difficult thing in a wrapper of appreciation and anticipation. That's what he does, isn't it? He reminds Philemon of the gospel. He wraps it up in the gospel. He thanks God for what the gospel has done in Philemon's life. And because of that, he's confident that Philemon will do the right thing for the glory of God. Well, we're going to cocoon, we're going to condemn, or we're going to care front. Choices before us, but actually there's only one choice to be made that will honour God and be to his glory. Let me pray.